Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. In the beginning was the Word. For 2,000 years, theologians, pastors, philosophers, Christians in their devotional time have been pondering this opening to the Gospel of John. Just the first six words of the Gospel of John. And nobody, check it, nobody has exhausted their meaning. Who is Jesus? Who is the Father? Who is this Holy Spirit? What are they doing with us? What are they doing with the cosmos? Just the first six words. Did I mention that? Well, like it says at the very end of John, if we managed to write down everything Jesus had said and done, the world could not hold all the books. So no wonder it's taken theologian David Ford 20, count them 20, years to write a commentary on the Gospel of John. Fellow theologian and Episcopal priest Wes Hill joins us today to interview David on this brand new commentary and dive deep into this unique gospel. Why does superabundance saturate the stories and the images of John? Why is it full of Old Testament Easter eggs? Why are Christian theological traditions obsessed with John in particular? Where did John's passion for Christian unity come from? And why is John's prologue like a bucket? Keep listening. Professor David F. Ford, as some of you may know, is Regis Professor of Divinity Emeritus at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Selwyn College. He has written many, many, many books. Our readers may be particularly interested in The Shape of Living and its sequel of sorts, The Drama of Living, which are a rich blend of theology and spirituality, practical reflection, and poetry. You might also pick up Theology, a very short introduction from the Oxford University Press Very Short Introduction Series, or The Future of Theology. He also does work in interfaith relations. And finally, watch out giving David a prayer request. He will remember that sucker for years, and he will actually pray for it. I have found this out personally. Wes will say more about David's new commentary on John, and we'll provide a link to it in the show notes today. Sit back and enjoy the conversation. 
So, David, it's it's really a privilege and an honor to be speaking with you today. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be with you, Wes. Well, we're here today to talk about a brand new book uh, that has just appeared called The Gospel of John, A Theological Commentary. It's published by Baker Academic, and it's been many years in the making. Could you talk a bit, uh, David, about the process of writing this commentary? I remember meeting you several years ago, and by that point, you had already been working on it for a long time. So what was it like to sort of marinate in this gospel for such a, an extended period? Oh, my goodness. Yes, it was wonderful. I, uh, marinating is exactly the right term for it, was the, you know, that the, there was time because I took 20 years writing it. The, there was time for slow soaking, for immersion in this extraordinary text. I mean, I did come to think that it is the most amazing text in the world. I, I'm a bit biased, I think, but 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 really it it is it, extraordinary, you know, but, but but it's a text that you can inhabit and learn to inhabit more more and more and more. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's a text that's just super abundant. You know, you never come to the end of it, uh, you know, and it's got all those symbols of superabundance of, uh, you know, all the wine at Cana and the spirit blowing where it wills and given without measure and uh, all the bread at the feeding of the 5,000 and the scent that fills the house in chapter 12 and the 153 fish, you know, but all of that, it, there's this sense that there's more and more and more and you never come to the end of it. It it's, gets deeper and deeper in a, in a sense. And I, I just loved finding the cover illustration by the Christian artist, uh, Paul Hobbs, which which is entitled The Deep. The deeper you go, the deeper you go, you know, and that that does really sum it up what the experience was and being continually fed by it, but also stretched, you know, that it stretches you intellectually, emotionally, in prayer, in and of course, in living. You know, that, that was basically the experience, though, though there was a crisis in the middle of writing it, actually, which I probably should should. I mentioned that when I retired from the chair in Cambridge in 2015, um, I'd just come out of giving the Bampton lectures in Oxford, six Bampton lectures in Oxford, uh, and the topic was uh, Daring Spirit, John's Gospel Now. And of course, giving those in Oxford meant that I'd been deep into a lot of the academic stuff on John's Gospel. And uh, and that was very important. There were all sorts of really good things to, to go into. But when I looked at what I'd been writing in the actual commentary, I realised I'd fallen between stools. You know, that what I was wanting to do was to write something really accessible to ordinary Christians, you know, so, so, so that it was something that, uh, you know, and not just, you know, preachers definitely and clergy, but, but also, you know, people who were lay people like myself, so to speak, you know, you know the, the people in my own church here in Cambridge. And uh, and that I was falling between stools. I was both trying to take part in those academic arguments and and get, get, give verdicts on them and go into them, and also write something that was accessible and you know was about living life in the twenty first century. And um, and I decided I just had to scrap all that I'd written so far. Uh, I, I used a lot of the content, obviously, and a lot of the background, but but, but I started over fresh and 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 uh, and and wrote you know, what you've got now, just beginning with the prologue and going right through, you know. So that 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 was uh, that was the thing, and and I I, I felt that. That what I wanted to do was to try to be, I, it's impossible really, but to try to be as accessible as John is, you know, because it, his is simple Greek. It's very straightforward language, much simpler than Paul. 
and uh, the the and so I I wanted it to be accessible like that if possible. Yes. Well, you know, you're you're mentioning uh, John's Greek makes me think of a story that you told me uh, years ago when we first met about um, Richard Hayes, the the famous New Testament scholar, being on a sabbatical and coming over to Cambridge and and having these sessions with you and with Richard Baucom, another uh, major New Testament figure. Uh, reading together the Gospel of John. Can you can you maybe say something about that experience? Oh, yes. That was in 2009. I mean, it was halfway through the process, and it was such an important time because R- Richard Borkham and Richard Hayes are two very different New Testament scholars. But, uh, I mean, Richard Hayes is, you know, my favorite North American biblical scholar by far. Uh, and and, uh, and I, I knew him from various, various contexts. But, uh, but when he, we, we put 21 dates of three hours each in our diaries between July and Christmas. And so we met and we did one chapter uh, every session, uh, every three hour session. And of course, what meant was that 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 each of them distilled their thoughts into that, into that session, you know, a lifetime of experience in New Testament studies. And both of them are also good theologians as well as good biblical scholars. So this was a wonderful learning experience for me. And, uh, you know, it led to so, so many. And, and because they're so different, you know, as biblical scholars, whenever they agreed, I thought, well, they must be right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so wish I could have been a fly on the wall for those conversations. With just one little anecdote, Wes, yes. if I have no doubt of that. You know, I remember when we came to chapter 17, which is that prayer of Jesus at the end of the farewell discourses, which is my, I think, my favorite chapter in the Bible. It's the deepest, the richest. It's it's just so amazing. Mm. But, mm. but at the beginning of it, Richard Borkham and Richard Hayes both agreed. This is an intertext with the Lord's Prayer. And I, I know I found out later that loads of scholars, you know, have, have said this sort of thing. But but when they said that, it made me read the two texts together. And it is quite astonishing if you pray the Lord's Prayer in the light of John 17. I mean, it's become part of my own prayer life as a result, you know. You know but but, they, but it was lovely the way they were both wise about the uh, New Testament scholarship, but also had those sort of connections. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say that before, because I, I recently wrote a little book on the Lord's Prayer, and I found myself trying to read it through the lens of John 17. So that's that's just marvelous. Well, David, you, you've talked a bit about the, um, the, the way the Gospel of John combines this wonderful accessibility and lucidity with profundity. Um, and, and while you were speaking, I was actually thinking of my old teacher in Durham, uh, Walter Moberly, who I remember him talking to us um, about the category of mystery in theology. And he said, in theology, mystery is not about a puzzle to be solved. It's about a uh, a well to be sort of luxuriated in. Uh, and he used the phrase, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Uh, this is this is mystery in, in the theological sense. And I wonder if you could Speak briefly about um, the 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 language of John, the the this this the plainness of speech, and yet the depth of it. You you use the phrase in the commentary, the deep, plain sense of the text, and I wonder if you could tease that out a bit for us. Oh yes, that's that's so true. By the way, I I really love Malta Mobley's work as well, and I've learned a lot from. Him. 
the, but uh, the the um, you know I, I think every reader experiences this of the of, of John's gospel. You know that that there are these ordinary words with endlessly rich meaning. You know that it's the verbal equivalent, I think, of incarnation, where these words are ordinary human words, but also open to divine truth in a quite extraordinary way. And uh, one of my favourites, for example, is menine. You know the Greek word which means you know to remain, to abide, to dwell, to stay, to endure, and other things as well. This wonderful, capacious word, which first comes in John's gospel as where the first disciples of Jesus ask him in their first words to him, they say, where are you staying? You know, where are you? Menine is is, is the verb there. And of course, it can mean just road. But, you know, the, the, the reader knows from the prologue the ending of the prologue, that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. You know, that's where he really stays, so to speak. In other words, the depth dimension of Jesus is where Jesus is staying. And right through the gospel, that word menine gathers more and more uh, richness. And, uh, and, and at the end, the, the, uh, well, in chapter 15, one finds that there are 10 verses with 10 occurrences of abide. You know, abide in me as I abide in you. If my words abide in you and so forth. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You know, the, I mean, that is, you know, just simply what happens in this extraordinary gospel, that you you get deeper and deeper into them. And that, of course, is one of the most profound things of all in John's gospel, that abide in me as I abide in you. And, and those words add as and in. There are other examples of this. You know, how do you know as the Father has loved me? I mean, how has the Father loved Jesus? That you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And, uh, you know, abide in my love. What does in mean? You know, and the, the climax of the use of both as and in is at the in the last six verses of chapter 17. You know, you just ask yourself, will you ever come to the uh, the end of exploring the, the, the meaning in as and in two of the richest theological words in the gospel? You know, you go on you know, and you just look at the prologue and you see in the, the opening verses, there are these huge words and the rest of the gospel pours meaning into them. It's like given, you're given these buckets at the beginning and then meaning pours and pours into them. You know, word itself, all things, life, light, all people, darkness. You know, I mean, again, any one of those can go, you can go further and further and the whole of the story gives you more and more content for them and of course all of them relate in various ways to Jesus but but i suppose that the most one of the most challenging ways in which john is so rich and deep is is in in his what i call his intertexts you know all those textual references the the, the opening word one is in the beginning is the same the opening words of his septuagint you know greek gospel uh, greek uh, bible um you know genesis 1 one. And, and what he's saying to you, you have to read Genesis alongside this, but you also have to read all the rest of the Septuagint alongside John to get his real meaning. I mean, I, I find the Psalms particularly interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, there's so many, he quotes more Psalms than any other part of the Old Testament. And um, the, it's just, again, that when you read the Psalms in Greek, you see just how much of this is soaked in. You know, I mean, he is marinated in, the, in his Septuagint. And of course, the Synoptic Gospels, likewise. 
this, that the, the interplay with the synoptic gospels is endlessly fascinating. I mean, whenever I worship you and, and, and there's a gospel from the synoptics, I always try to think of it Johanninely. And whenever there's a John gospel, I always try to think of it synoptically. And it's always fruitful to try to see the interplay between, between the two. And Paul, the same things happens with Paul, you know, that, that, uh, you know, especially Ephesians and Colossians, I find that when you, you know, that mature Pauline theology in the, in the Pauline tradition resonates very deeply with John, which is the mature gospel tradition, if you like. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I think um, turning from the, the, the bounty and the beauty for a moment, I, I think that many readers also find John to be quite a difficult text. And I'm not speaking simply about uh, linguistic difficulty, but sort of conceptual difficulty. Um, and one of these places is in the way the Gospel of John seems to make the Jews, it uses that phrase over and over, to be the the enemies in the story. And David, I know that your work um, has involved you for many years in interfaith dialogue, and particularly with the Scriptural Reasoning Project, where you're you're sitting down with Jews and Muslims and Christians and reading texts together. So I wonder if you might speak to us about how we in the 21st century ought to grapple with this aspect of the Gospel of John. Oh, goodness, yes, this is a very serious issue and, and very important. I, I spent an awful lot of time, you know, uh, on this in, in various ways. I mean, scriptural reasoning is a remarkable practice. It's been one of the great surprises of my life, you know, to uh, take part in that. And the surprises are continuing too, you know, as it's spread around the world and into all sorts of different non-academic settings. And, uh, you know, China has been one of the great surprises where they do scriptural reasoning with six texts, you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Confucian, Buddhist, and Taoist texts, and uh, I, I've been involved, uh, been involved in a in a big project there. Um, but um, but yes, it, what happens in scripture reasoning is intensive study and conversation by members of different religious traditions around texts from their scriptures, usually on a particular topic. And um, the, the scripturalreasoning.org website gives it and the Rose Castle Foundation website. And there's also a U University of Virginia hosts uh, an online journal in scriptural mm. reasoning. But uh, but you know what what is what happens at its best i think in scriptural reasoning is that you go deeper into your own texts i mean if if you've never really read your texts with other people from other traditions who are deep into their texts and are good interpreters you know you find that they're asking all sorts of fascinating questions and making fascinating insights into into your own text so you go deeper into your own deeper into their texts obviously as well which is a huge privilege to be led into yeah. you know the heart of another tradition by people who are deep in it um, and also deeper into the world we share. You know, and, and the outcome of this multiple deepening, you know, is that you also deepen your relationship with them. But it's not about agreeing on things. You don't try to negotiate, you know, a, an agreed statement on the Messiah or something. You know, you know, that 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 uh, what and well, as Ben Quash, one of the Anglicans who's been a, a leading member of scriptural reasoning of the years and written some lovely stuff about it. And um, as Ben Quash says, it, it's about improving the quality of our disagreements often. You know, of course, you you agree on something, but you also improve the quality. You know, you go deeper in into that. And as regards the Jews and John's gospel, I mean, it's been an appalling history. You know, when I used to teach a final year course in in Cambridge University, you know, in the Faculty of Divinity there, um, 
the students were always appalled by some of the texts, you know, the, the ways in which John's gospel has been interpreted against the Jews in an ongoing way down the, down the centuries. Right. And it really is genuinely shocking. And I, I've been shocked by it as well. Uh, but it, in my own response in the book, I, I think there were, there were two really important events that, you know, as well as the ongoing scriptural reasoning engagement and being able to, you know, really try out with Jews and Muslims all sorts of readings of these things. But, uh, but one was when I was writing chapter eight, Peter Oakes, that's O-C-H-S, who, who's a professor at the University of Virginia and was one of the co-founders of scriptural reasoning and has led, you know, has doctoral programs and all sorts of things in, in UVA on scriptural reasoning. That a, a very, very remarkable person, actually. But he was invited by Cambridge University to give a series of named lectures, the Hulsean lectures uh, in, in Cambridge. And they, he gave them over three weeks and stayed with us at home. Uh, he and his wife were very close friends, myself and my wife, and he stayed with us. And I was writing on, on chapter eight. So I decided that, gosh, would Peter be willing to read chapter eight with me over that three week period? And that was just a wonderful time because, you know, you really did have to face up to all the nitty gritty questions. And, and you know, part of the result of that is the chapter that uh, you know, chapter eight, which is a very different sort of chapter in the commentary. Uh, you know, it really does take that whole dimension very seriously and um, has a way. It, it won't please everyone, of course. No, nothing does. Uh, you know, John's gospel is such a conflicted gospel in terms of interpretations. But, uh, but, uh, but I owe a huge amount to that time with Peter. The other thing was the Macdonald Agape Foundation uh, gave me a grant out of the blue. I didn't even ask for it. This was amazing. Um, to in order to have a a symposium on anything I liked in Cambridge and to invite the people I most wanted there. So, so I had a symposium in January 2014 on John and, um, and invited Richard Borkham and Richard Hayes came, uh, Peter Oakes came, uh, one of the best Muslim uh, women commentators on the Quran, a scholar of the Quran, Maria Day Cake, who you may, may know of, uh, she, she came as well. Uh, so did Francis Young, so did Mihol Oshir, so did a range of other people. But um, but the person who came and who gave the paper on John 8 was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Um, and he gave a superb paper on chapter 8. I mean, he's done a lot of reconciliation work. He's deeply concerned with the, the divide, the divisions in our world, and the sort of thing that you know uh, that that um, uh, you know, as in interfaith divisions and so forth, and uh, and he gave it, and we we had this really in depth discussion of uh, uh, not just chapter eight, but the whole area of the Jews in relation to John's gospel, you know, with Jewish participation again, and uh, and that was that was really good, and I I just say in conclusion on this one, you know, that that. What the aim should be, I think, for Christians is that there's been a terrible history in many ways of the reception of John's gospel in Jewish Christian relations. And what we need to do is create a better history. And that better history won't be done, it seems to me, without Jews being fully part of it, you know, and reading our scriptures with Jews and facing the difficult questions. Baking powder, biscuits, and hair cream. These are just three things that the Living Church magazine used to run advertisements for. Yeah, we go way back. 
Well, it may no longer be 1910, but we're still happy to help you share the word about maybe not baking powder, but about anything that you have going on that you would like a smart, informed Christian audience to know about. Events, job openings, books, curricula, pilgrimages. If it's something that could serve Christian leaders, we will help you spread the word on this podcast. Just email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org and we'll get you started. Email ambernoel at livingchurch.org. You know, David, I, I, I think I'm a bit biased because I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, and uh, the the Living Church magazine, which is sponsoring this podcast, serves the Anglican Communion. And uh, you're an Anglican as well. Uh, you're a lay reader in the Church of England. Your wife is a, a priest. And uh, one of the striking things to me about our Anglican tradition is just how much the Gospel of John has been commented upon. I think of great commentaries by you know, Hoskins, I think of uh, Archbishop William Temple's readings in St. John's Gospel. I think of uh, more recent things uh, like Barnabas Linder's uh, commentary. I I wonder if you were conscious as you were writing of sort of standing within that stream or or how you felt that perhaps that that Anglican charism affected what you wrote. Uh, any, Any thoughts on that? Oh, that's such a wonderful question, because uh, it, being an Anglican, I, I'm a Church of Ireland Anglican, actually, originally, you know, the, the, the Anglican Church in Ireland, where we're a small, tiny minority, you know, <laughs> in relation to other churches. Um, uh, but, um, but yes, Anglicans have loved John's Gospel. And I know for me, uh, as I've gone on this uh, 20-year uh, <laughs> task of working o- on it, um, that it really has deepened my appreciation of my own tradition in all sorts of ways. That uh, you know, morning prayer and the lectionary and the Eucharist and the collects. I mean, the collects are just so amazing. And uh, you know, when you see the way John enters into the collects in all sorts of ways, you know, I I think that if you were to take if you were to take to heart and to mind, you know, the collects for a year, you'd have the most balanced, profound biblical theology you could possibly have. You know, they, they, they really are wonderful. Um, and, um, you know, that, that and, and also the pastoral side of Anglicanism, I was acutely aware of, you know, the, the need to be pastoral, you know, the, the, the care of people and local communities, but not just local, but also regional and also national and also international. You know, and John's gospel with its extraordinary scope, you know, fed into all those things. And one thing that happened actually for me in the course of it was that uh, I was invited to chair a group that was to produce a, a, a and a vision for education for the Church of England in schools. You know, there's about a million pupils are in uh, Church of England schools, state-funded Church of England schools in this country. It's unimaginable in America. Uh, and um, the and and um, they they wanted a vi- they never really had a vision. And uh, we had a most wonderful couple of years doing that. It's it's all available online. The, the vision. It's called Deeply Christian Serving the Common Good, and. Uh, and, you know, that's exactly what I think Anglicanism should be about. It should be about being deeply Christian and also serving the whole world, you know, serving the common good of our of, of humanity and uh, that. And um, 
and, and, and that vision was somehow, and, and John 10.10 was our leading text, you know, come, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its abundance. Um, and, uh, and as well, I had so many conferences and study days with Anglican lay people, clergy, lay readers. And I remember reading Paul Cephalou's book. If I have, I don't know whether I have the pronunciation right, C-E-F-A-L-U. His book is called The Johannine Renaissance in Early Modern English Literature and Theology. And it shows how in the aftermath of the, Revela- of the, the Reformation, uh, you know, so many English Anglicans were attracted deeper and deeper into John. People like George Herbert or Thomas Traherne. Now, now Thomas Traherne, I think, is my favourite of all Anglican theologians. And I think the, 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 more, the recently discovered works of his, like the Kingdom of God, are just glorious. Um, and uh, so I quote Denise Inge is one of the great commentators. Sadly, she died. Her, 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 her um, you know, uh, she, she was married to the current uh, Bishop of uh, Worcester, but, uh, but, she, but she died of cancer a while ago. But she produced this wonderful reader of Traherne. And, uh, and I quote him in some of the sidebars in the book, you know, because I, I think he's just so good. But, but of the modern Anglican commentators, I, I think, um, you know, Westcott obviously is the one of the, he, he had my chair in the, uh, he was a previous Regis Professor of Divinity. And that chair was founded, by the way, by Henry VIII in 1540. You know, so many other wonderful uh, Anglican interpreters. <clears throat> Dorothy Lee in Australia, you know, has this lovely book. Flesh and glory. She's amazing. Ah, she is. And, you know, after that, after she wrote that, she became an Anglican priest, interestingly. Uh, oh, is know, that right? Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's now, I, I understand. I'd met her and had time with her when she visited Cambridge once, but but uh, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure she became an Anglican priest since then. Richard Borkham is another one, of course, another Anglican. Yes, yes. Alan Eccleston, his little book, The, uh, the Scaffolding of Spirit, um, you know, his reflections on the Gospel of John in that, that was one of the best of all books. He's an Anglican parish for decades in the north of England uh, who wrote this gem of a book on uh, on John's Gospel. Um, and Ben Quash, uh, you know, I mean, the people, the Anglicans who are fed into this commentary, you know, Kate Sonderegger, for example, uh, Hans Fry, my teacher in Yale, you know, the, uh, who, who you know, I think is the best North American theologian of the 20th century. Uh, and we've still got a lot to learn from him. Um, you know, he too. Yes. And, and also, Do you know, I, I only recently learned that he was an Episcopalian. I, yes, I didn't oh, know yes, that before. Definitely so. He, he, was a, he was a morning and evening prayer Episcopalian. Isn't that interesting? You know, yeah. that, that really, he yeah. really deeply valued that pattern of the daily office. Uh, and that was just so, so important for me. I think his book, The Identity of Jesus Christ, is one of the really great books on, on Jesus. But, 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 there's a big but, Wes, in, in, in all this, that what you find is, of course, my own Anglican tradition it has been crucial in relation to John. But of course, every other tradition that I can find seems to have a special place for John as well. You know, you look at the Quakers and George Fox 
found that was so. You look at the at the Catholics, the great contemporary Catholic commentators, uh, Margaret Daly Denton, one of my favourites, you know, in, in this commentary, her commentary, supposing him to be the gardener, which is the Earth Bible commentary, is a terrific one on John's gospel. I mean, so, of course, Raymond Brown, uh, Rudolf Schnackenberg, uh, you know, uh, Maloney, you know, I mean, they just go on. But also the Orthodox, you know, you look at the, orth- the great Orthodox commentators on, on John's God, the Lutherans too, Bultmann and and co. And of course, uh, you know, John was Luther's favourite gospel. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so it goes on, the non-denominational. I mean, I think one of the great surprise commentaries for me, which was really profound, is Frederick Dale Bruner's uh, one, uh, which oh, I don't know yes. whether you know it. I've not had a it's chance a to look at it American yet. Country. I, I, I've only seen it. Yeah, it's it's in the evangelical tradition and it's profound. It's it's really, really good. So, you know, it just goes it goes on and Presbyterians I haven't mentioned yet, or Methodists. I mean, look at C.K. Barrett the Methodist, or Presbyterians, Susan Highland, or Leslie Newbigin. You know, they they I mean this goes on and on. And uh, the lesson I take... Or Herman Ritterboff among the Dutch Reform. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, if I, the lesson I take from this is that John has the potential among all the Gospels, among all the New Testament documents, uh, to bring us together in depth. You know, to have a, a unity in depth that goes to the... And that looks at only the essential. I mean, I think, actually, the reason why John highlights unity so much in his account of Jesus' ministry and has that extraordinary final prayer for unity in John 17, is that he had lived through the early church, which was pretty divided. You know, it had a lot of arguments going on and he was passionate about unity. Jesus was passionate about unity and unity in love. And uh, and I, I mean, what I emerged from uh, looking, especially at, at the end of, uh, you know, being gripped so much and still am by John 17, is that, you know, those of us who don't have a passion for unity aren't Christian, <laughs> that we yeah. that we need yeah. to have that passion and that and that it's quite deliberate of John to leave out a lot of the controversial issues. You know, there's nothing about circumcision. There's nothing about sex. There's nothing about all sorts of other things in John's gospel. You know, that what, what John does, is he focuses on what he sees as the essentials. And those are the things that he sees at the heart of the gospel. And I think one, one you know, one... Um, one bids for disunity in the church, that the church should be divided over any issue that's not in John's gospel at one's peril. You know, that I think the, you know, the early church, the the, the main issue that it was divided on was, of course, Christology. And that is a central Johann, Johannine thing. But, but other things, beware, beware. David, I wonder if you could speak to the way that you hope this commentary will be used by working clergy. How would you like to see this benefit preachers and and folk who are trying to um, help parishes and and lay Bible study groups sort of come alive to the text? You know, the main thing I hope is that people will use this commentary to reread and go deeper and deeper into John's gospel. It's what we all need, you know, because of that thing that you mentioned already, you know, that it's both uh, very comprehensible on first reading, but also then it becomes more and more challenging the more you reread it. You know, I, I think it's concern for maturing faith 
is is very very important uh, and uh, i mean you know the later stages of the commentary over some years i used to read it with Michael Bolland. Now, Michael Bolland is the principal of Ridley Hall Theological College here in Cambridge. I, I was on the, the, the board of, of that for, for 15 years, and I was also chair of the board of the other, the more Catholic uh, Anglican College, Westcott House here in Cambridge for 15 years, which gave me, of course, an inside uh, seat, you know, in, in seeing what formation was about, you know, those 15 years in, in terms of the two theological colleges in, in Cambridge. Uh, and of course, I also taught courses to theological students year after year after year for 24 years in Cambridge and before that, 15 years in Birmingham. So, uh, so you know, that, that, that I've been close up against it. And also my wife is an Anglican priest. And, uh, you know, that that, that has been uh, very important indeed to, you know, because she has, of course, accompanied my uh, writing of John's Gospel all the way. Um, and as you say, I've been trying to preach John as well. So so I do hope that built in to the, the, the whole commentary is uh, a capacity to stimulate and inspire people who have that sort of responsibility, the huge responsibility for preaching and teaching in the church and also for pastoral care. Uh, I, I think all those all those go together and John is profoundly helpful. I mean, I'm in favour of having uh, another Johannine Renaissance, you know, which, uh, which Cephalou talks about in the post-Reformation time in, in England. Uh, and I think it would do us all good. It would be a quiet revolution, you know, it's a quiet Renaissance, but, but but because, you know, largely it goes on through people really inhabiting this extraordinary gospel and going deeper and deeper. Um, and um, and I, I think I'd make, uh, you know, a few further points uh, uh, about this. Um, that, um, you know, I, I, I'm so impressed by the way John's as so construction, you know, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Now, what that means is we have to go deep into how the Father sent Jesus, but it's an as. It's not that we have to do exactly the same as he did in first century Palestine. We have to improvise endlessly in the Spirit. That's why the Spirit is given in John. So much more about the Spirit in John than in other Gospels. And and it, 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 we have to go on improvising in the Spirit. And what I've tried to do in the, the commentary is to inspire such improvisation, you know, whatever, whatever one's doing. Yes. Um, and the other thing that I try to do is, if you notice the italics in it, you know, every so often there's a sentence or two in italics. And that's my attempt to summarise what I would call the wisdom of John for today. You know, and again, it's not, in order to give people an easy package of answers. John's gospel inspires us to have faith that's really profoundly interrogative. You know, that's not just a, a package of do this, say this, you know, uh, believe this, do this. Um, he has these big open commands, you know, to love, to wash feet, to uh, to, to follow uh, and so forth. And he, he doesn't give detailed ethics. He doesn't give detail. You know, what he does is he trusts your maturing into faith. And the more you know who Jesus is, the more you get into this, the more you are going to be inspired to improvise in the spirit, you know, and to do the right things in your situation that has never recurred before. Every day is different. And so so what, what I think, you know, 
a preacher needs to be alert to their own situation and to be able to improvise on John's gospel and all the other rest of scriptures and other things, truth and meaning, wherever it's wherever it's found, you know, including the newspapers. You know, they need to be able to do that. And I hope the, 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 that the, the commentary, uh, you know, is able to do that. And um, I mean, John, it, it seems to me just really is so fruitful if you learn to reread, you know, and learn to pray it. Well, that's the other thing. The, the Eccleston book that I said is he ends with a suggestion that you pray John's gospel like we pray the psalm in the Anglican church. So I, so I hope that clergy and preachers and so forth, you know, will actually develop habits like that. It's not what my commentary says so much as my commentary inspires them to find out and to do and to preach. I was I was raised here in the States in the evangelical tradition. And uh, one of the things that evangelicals have done over the years is they've actually printed uh, little booklets which simply contain the Gospel of John and nothing else. And they will often give these booklets to uh, people who are newly converted to Christian faith. And I think the the um, the animating impulse behind that is that John is so accessible, but John will also take you right to the heart of who Jesus is, which is what Christian faith is all about. It, it orbits around this person of of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, David, this is this is probably an impossible question to answer, but I wonder if you could say something about what what really is it about Jesus that the Gospel of John wants us to know. Perhaps take a stab. <laughs> Gosh, do, do we have all day and all night? You know, <laughs> or 20, year, 20 years, preferably. Uh, yes, I, exactly. I, I, that's a huge one. I mean, just one thing that I, I remember, I, this isn't original to me, but, I, but, but you know, I was really taken by the succession of bosoms in John. You know, that, that the first bosom comes in 118, where we get the sun uh, on the bosom of the father. Uh, you know, as the NRSV says, the sun close to the father's heart. You know, that that uh, in other words, where we see Jesus, who Jesus is, is right at the heart of all reality. You know, one with God in love, you know, that that th this is love at the heart of reality. And, you know, I think one of the most difficult things to take in really is that we are loved by this God, you know, and and uh, Jesus is the main way we can take it in. It seems to me that that, uh, you know, we meet in John. John constructs his gospel so that we, on the one hand, meet Jesus through all those different meetings, his conversations, his signs, his and so forth. And then, of course, climactically in his uh, death and resurrection. Um, and, uh, you know, we just meet Jesus again and again. And of course, John is writing on the understanding that the one he's writing about is present to each reader. You know, Jesus is present as God is present. And so therefore, one has this amazing experience of meeting the one you're reading about. You could just go deeper and deeper into that. And then, of course, what John wants is for you to abide there, to live there, to be permanently there that for all eternity. You know, this is your, this is life. This is joy. This is love. This is glory. This is, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, it just goes on and on and on. That's and, right. and, and he wants you to inhabit that. But he also wants you to appreciate that, you know, that you live 
always in the presence of this person. And you never, and he's alive, he's not dead, you know, I mean, he's still breathing his spirit into you. You know, that it, one of the great insights for me about the, the breathing of the Holy Spirit in chapter 20 was when I realized, gosh, does one really think that if one's mutually indwelling, abiding in him and him in us, he stopped breathing? Of course not. He's still breathing <laughs> the spirit. Yeah. You know, this is a minute-by-minute minute experience. This is what we what we inhabit. And um, I, I think John's gospel enables you to meet again in, but also it directs you to the other gospels. It directs you to Paul. It directs you to the whole Old Testament tradition. And so you just realize that who you're getting to know has all the depth of God and all the the human depth of the Jesus who, uh, you know, walked around and met the woman at the well, met Nicodemus and so forth. And you enter into these things and it's just never comes to an end. You know, you you just go on and on in, in this. End. It, you know, it's it's an encounter and then it's an abiding and and it's your future as well. I love the ending of John's gospel where, you know, the, the Peter asks about the beloved disciple and what's going to happen to him. And you're brought back to the bosom. You know, the middle bosom in John's gospel is at the Last Supper where the, the, the beloved disciple is in the bosom of Jesus. So Jesus on the bosom of the Father, the beloved disciple on the bosom of Jesus. And then at the very end, we're reminded of that. When of that last supper, in that last exchange between Jesus and Peter, and and what Jesus says, what is it to you if he should remain, abide? It's that word menine again. Until I come, you follow me. You know, and it seems to me that what the what this gospel does at the end is invite you into this glorious following of Jesus and endless learning more and more about who he is. You know, it says the world wouldn't being big enough to contain all the books if you were to get all the testimonies to Jesus, which is a great encouragement for those of us who add a few more books to it, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, David, thank you so much. Thank you above all for this wonderful gift of the commentary. The commentary is The Gospel of John, subtitled A Theological Commentary, published by Baker Academic. Um, it appeared in 2021 and uh, just delighted that it's here, delighted that you've given this gift to us, and I hope that many of our listeners will be prompted to pick it up and discover the riches for themselves. So thank you, David. Well, thank you very much indeed. And what I really hope is that they will reread and reread John's Gospel every day of their lives. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Again, you can find a link to learn more or purchase David's new commentary in the show notes today. And join us in two weeks in Rome. We have got a special dispatch for you, Una Speciale da Roma. I don't know if that's correct, but I'm going for it. Recorded on site around the city complete with traffic noises and church bells. We'll hear from an ecumenical group of pilgrims along with representatives from the Vatican on Christian unity, ecumenism, pasta, and what all this has to do with the average Christian in the pew, because it does. Tune in, a la prossima. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.